coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. A researcher accidentally roots the Red Hat update infrastructure on Azure. Plus, newly discovered flaws that are being actively exploited in the wild on some common routers right now. And then hacking Windows 10 by holding down the shift key. Plus, your great questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 295 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode on December 1st. 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, 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 our live stream and all the downloads over at jupiterbroadcasting.com? Yeah, it's powered by Scale Engine. Go check them out at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello. Hello. These weeks you're just going to say the tech the admin and the t-shirt. The t-shirt? I do. I think that would be good because you do kind of have like a thing going with the t-shirts right now. <laughs> yeah, that's – I like that one too. A 2013 Mint edition it looks like. Yep. Nice. The Developer Summit in Malta. Boy, you know, that's the that's really what you take away from these trips over the years. <clears throat> it's just a bunch of shirts. <laughs> A bunch of shirts and the occasional cold and some memories. Well, we have much... Nobody got a cold in Malta. It was like 28 degrees Celsius every day and sunny. Honestly, I feel like we all did pretty good at Meet BSD, too. I didn't get anything, and nobody in our crew got anything. You were good. Yeah, I think... I. You know what? I think it just... You just it's all about washing the hands. It's really about washing the hands and, mm-hmm. and don't touch mm-hmm. your face in between washing the hands. That's Chris's pro tips for going to events. Um Microsoft could have used some pro tips when setting up the Red Hat update services for Azure. You want to start there? Yeah. This yep. is an interesting story. Tell me all about it. Uh, well, this one got uh, amused me because uh, I've, I've known the researcher that did this since he was a little kid just goofing off on IRC. No. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, researcher Ian Duffy uh, accidentally rooted all of Microsoft's Azure uh, Red Hat update infrastructure servers. <laughs> So he he starts with, I was tasked with creating a uh, machine image of Red Hat Enterprise Linux that was compliant with the Security Technical Implementation Guide defined by the U.S. Department of Defense. Oh. Uh, This machine image was to be used on both uh, AWS, Amazon's cloud thing, and Microsoft Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud thing, uh, both of which offer marketplace images which have a metered billing uh, pricing model, meaning that instead of having to pay for licenses for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, um, the fee is just included in the per hour fee for the virtual machine. So, uh, but if you create your own image, it's not going to be set up that way, right? And you're going to have to provide your own uh, license. Sure, so sure. it's, uh, so he says, ideally I wanted uh, my custom image to be built under the same mechanism um, as such. The virtual machines would be able to consume the software updates from the local Red Hat uh, Enterprise Linux repository owned and operated by each of the respective cloud providers. Uh, So he goes about doing that, and he says both Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure utilize uh, a deployment of Red Hat uh, update infrastructure for supplying that functionality. Yeah, on their their own network. Yeah, they have uh, Red Hat update appliances installed on their network that allow all the virtual machines to get the updates and download them from inside the cloud. That's just got to save a ton of bandwidth. Yeah, and also it's, I think, the only way they can do the uh, rent the license by the hour type thing. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's only one Red Hat update appliance per Red Hat update infrastructure installation. 
However, uh, at Amazon and Azure and so on, they have one for each region uh, so that the regions don't share anything so that they're not going to go down or whatever. Um, basically, so both uh, AWS and Azure use SSL certificates for authentication against the repositories. However, uh, these are the same SSL certificates for every instance. Because you're cloning an existing image, they have one SSL private key that they put in every one of these instances. So all of them can prove that they have the key, but they all have the same key. And anybody else could steal that key. Um, so that's slightly problematic. Mm. Uh, but on Amazon uh, AWS, using the SSL certificate is not enough. You must have booted your instance from an AMI that has an associated billing code. Uh, it's this billing code that ensures that you paid the extra premium to be running Red Hat Enterprise Linux. On Azure, it remains undetermined how they manage to actually track the billing to tell which instances have to pay and which ones don't. Uh, at the time of research, it was possible to copy the SSL certificate from one instance to another and successfully authenticate. Additionally, if you duplicate a Red Hat Enterprise Linux virtual disk and create a new instance from uh, all the billing as, uh, associations seems to be lost, but repository access is still available. Uh-huh. Possibly meaning that you can get Red Hat Enterprise Linux for free on Amazon Azure. Or, sorry, uh, Microsoft. Microsoft, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, on Amazon, to set up repository connectivity, they provide an RPM uh, with the necessary configuration. Uh, the installation script it references comes from an archive, which includes in the website there. Uh, if you expand this archive, you'll find the client configuration for each of the different regions. Mm -hmm. So you can see the server names are like, you know, West Europe dot, uh, yep. or West Europe dash R-H-U-A uh, yep. dot. East US dot to net. South Central US. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the post then goes on how he figured out all the different host names and so on, including looking at the build host for the RPM and so on. Uh he says, the build host is interesting. Uh, you also find this RHUI, so Red Hat Update Infrastructure dash monitor dot cloudapp.net, which by doing a port scan, he figured out is listening on port 8080 with a little web interface. Uh huh. So despite that application requiring a username and password, which he obviously didn't have, to get access to it, it was possible to execute uh, its backend log collector via the API uh, on a specified content delivery server. Uh, when the collector service completed, uh, the application supplied URLs to archives, which contained the logs and configuration files from that server. So even though the web UI is supposed to require username and password, there's some endpoints you can get to that will trigger stuff, and it won't ask you to log in. Right? Um, and when you do it that way, you can get this uh, collection of log files. But instead of just log files, it also includes all the configuration files no. from Microsoft's side of the setup of the servers. Oh, oh. oh, that's a bit of a thing. Yeah, and so you can see yeah, there's conf and yep. conf.d, and you can see there's their Apache and uh, various other things. Mm -hmm. What really gets you, though, are those two highlighted ones there under pulp. Uh, CA.CRT uh, and CA.KEY. Yes. So <laughs> included in these archives are the SSL certificates that would grant full administrative access to the Red Hat update appliances. Oh, man. So these certificates, anything signed by these certificates is allowed to log in as a, to basically prove that it's the administrator. So now the researcher could access each of these different update appliances with full administrative access. And they could create a new package on there and distribute it to all the machines. Or better yet... They could create a newer version of some common package that maybe exists on every single machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that package also include a backdoor. Now, 
every Red Hat Enterprise Linux VM in uh, at the cloud provider is now going to be like, oh, look, an important update. Let me download that and install it for you. Right. On every single Red Hat VM in the Microsoft Cloud. Wow, that's so nice and automatic and handy like, for them. <laughs> rooted every Microsoft, yeah. every Red Hat box at Microsoft's uh, Cloud. Yeah. Uh, so he goes on to say, uh, there's actually in the in the repo that it installs that uh, pulls the stuff from uh, that repo, uh, they have the GPG check disabled to avoid that <laughs> pop up message where you have to accept the key. Yeah, that's uh, annoying. You know, it's frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. That's what the point of that is also to stop unsigned packages from being able to be installed. Huh. However, you know, in this case, I imagine that config thing, if it was set up for GPG, would have included the GPG key anyway. So it wouldn't have probably. helped. Yeah, you're but, probably right. you know, maybe it's something they should look at. <laughs> anyway, he reported the issue to Microsoft in accordance with the Microsoft Online Services bug bounty terms. Microsoft agreed it was a vulnerability in their systems and they took immediate action to prevent public access to that uh, RHUI monitor. Uh, additionally, they uh, eventually prevented public access to the Red Hat update appliances, and they claim they've uh, swapped out all the secret keys and so on so that any, if anybody other than him also got copies of those keys, uh, they wouldn't still have access. I mean, they really also have no idea, perhaps, if anyone ever took advantage of this flaw. For right. all they know, somebody might be having some sort of heyday, some agency may have gotten in there. I mean, I'm just saying, they don't really know. In fact, I think that's addressed in one of the articles I read about this. Sort of a, maybe also a little bit of a, well, reminds us Azure is still also kind of a new platform and some of these things are still getting worked out. Well, it's like most of the same flaws exist at Amazon, except for Amazon takes one extra step uh, to make sure that they're getting paid for the license because they're probably paying Red Hat for the license. But they may and also, that, we don't know if they're checking signatures, right? Do we know about that for Amazon? Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it seems like it's possible that if he figured out the host name and Amazon wasn't blocking access to the update monitor, that he would have been able to do the same thing. Wow, um, Alan. That is, that was a huge hole. And do you know if yeah. he's going to get, uh, he, they should write him a... He did it under the bug bounty, so I'm I'm sure he uh, would have got a bug bounty. That's kind of a well. huge deal. And what I love about it, really, is... Uh, it's something that a system administrator could figure out. Like you don't, you didn't really have to develop like zero day exploit code or something like that. That's sort of no, compelling like about this. He flaw. only figured he only was looking at it because he was trying to figure out how to make his own custom image that would get billed the same way as the stock images, uh, and accidentally figured out it's like, oh, what, what, why do, why is it sending me its SSL private key? That's not supposed to happen. That also really intrigues me about this kind of story because it's one of the things where really. Most of us that have worked in this field, if we if we were clever enough to catch this and inquisitive inquisitive enough to follow it and smart enough to use the bug bounty program, we could do this. And so that's what's so cool about Ian doing this is yeah, in, in this case, it didn't require any special skills. Almost anybody who watches the show could have done this if they had just been looking into it at that level for you know some innocent reason like he was. And accidentally stumbled on. Yeah, and he did a great job. So uh, thumbs up to him, and his write-up's great, too. We'll have a link to it. it. Somebody else could have just as easily downloaded that that config archive and not noticed that the one of the things was a key that would let you do something. Right. Yeah, for sure. Probably people, I mean, people have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, good job. And that's an interesting story. I, I did catch it. I, I mentioned the, the, the story on uh, Linux Unplugged, but I didn't know the background with Ian and all of that. So that's really cool. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, you know, 
He, he's been on IRC since... I've known him on IRC for many, many years. I must have made you smile there when you saw this story come out. Did, yeah. did, did you know ahead of time? Did you... Well, no, I just I, I knew because yeah. I follow him on Twitter and I saw him tweet about it. <laughs> well, all right. Let me take a moment and thank our first sponsor this week, and that is the great folks at Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com is the page you go to to support the show and get yourself $25 off a Ting phone or device. Or, you know, yeah, this is even better because if you're going to bring a device, then you just get $25 in service credits, and that's probably going to pay for more than your first month. And that's that feels amazing. It did for me. When I switched to Ting in my first month, I didn't even pay for it. This is back in the day. I brought an Evo 4G. Now, Ting now has GSM and CDMA networks, so check their BYOD page because the options are wider than ever. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and they add them all up. Whatever you've used. That's what you pay. It's six dollars a month for the line. Every new line's just six bucks. No contract, no early termination fee. And what I love about pay for what you use is our audience is easily savvy enough to download your music to your phone, download your podcast while you're on Wi-Fi. Don't back up or sync unless you have Wi-Fi turned on for things like Dropbox. And now Netflix is helping you out because it looks like they're adding the option to smartphones and tablets for downloads. Of Netflix shows. Now, I know it can't be their entire library, I'm sure, because of licensing issues, but Ting's got a write-up, so go to techsnap.ting.com and read more about it. They're really following this stuff closely. They also have a write-up about the new DirecTV service offering on their blog. Uh, I think this could be huge, and I really would love to see Netflix even added to the Android TV version because, you know, when I'm on a MiFi I want to be able to, when I'm traveling, I would love to be able to download these before I leave, and then I'll just use the MiFi for my general browsing. That's what I love about Ting is when I am on the road, I just use the data for a little bit. I'm a little bit heavier of a data user, and then most of the year, I hardly pay anything for data. It's such a great option. I'm, I save so much money by switching to Ting, and you can find out too. Use their savings calculator. Click on what would you save. Go in there. Click that son of a gun. Put your data in there. Just put your numbers in there. Put all of your – no, it's just once your your, your messages, your megabytes, all that kind of stuff. And it will run the calculation and see how much you would say. TechSnap.Ting.com. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan. So our next story sounds like it's something that's going on in the wild right now. Uh, Tell me what's happening, sir. Uh, so this is a newly discovered rotor flaw being handled, hammered in the wild. And what's interesting is that uh, basically they found another device that they could adapt the – somebody just told me how to pronounce it and now I forget. What is it? Oh, yeah. No, that, it's, not that, the, it's, not the, it's not Maria, right? Right. It's Murray or something like that. Murray. Okay. <laughs> You're talking about the botnet that takes advantage of all the little shitty devices. Yeah. Yeah. I kept calling it Mariah and it's uh, – should we see? I could ask Google how to pronounce it. Do you think Google would know? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Sharon will tell us in a We've minute. Been talking. Anyway. Uh, online criminals, at least some of them, uh, wielding the notorious Mariah. Mariah Mar- Let's just call it Mariah Carey. I don't know. Mariah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> malware have uh, transformed an Internet of Things device into powerful denial of service. Cannons have begun exploiting a critical flaw that's present in millions of home routers. Mirai. Mirai. That's, yes. Okay. Thanks, RJ. That's not at all how English works, but anyway. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Routers provided by German and Irish ISP customers for Deutsche Telekom and IRCOM, respectively, have been identified as being vulnerable, according to recently published reports from researchers who are tracking the attacks. 
The attacks exploit a weakness found in routers made by Zizel, Speedport, and possibly other manufacturers. The devices leave uh, TCP port 7547 open to outside connections from the internet. The mm. exploits use uh, the opening to send commands based on the TR069 and related TR064 protocols, which ISPs use to remotely manage large fleets of routers. Uh, according to this advisory published Monday morning by the SANS Internet Storm Center, honeypot servers posing as vulnerable routers are receiving exploits every five or ten minutes. So uh, there's this protocol, these two protocols called uh, TR069 and 064, uh, and basically it allows the ISP to send this like SOAP XML file to the router saying, hey, change your configuration to, to match this, right? Okay. Um, so there's like one for changing the NTP servers to where you sync your time to, one for the DNS, and a couple other ones like that, right? Okay. Um, and there's a flaw in the way it processes this SOAP where uh, if you stick certain special shell characters and so on in the SOAP, it'll end up running commands on the router instead. Mm. Uh, so uh, the SANS Dean of Research, uh, Johannes Ulrich, said on Mondays uh, that the exploits are mostly, uh, most certainly the cause behind an outage that hit Deutsche Telekom customers over the weekend. In a Facebook update, officials for the German ISP said 900,000 customers were vulnerable to attack until they had rebooted uh, their modem to get rid of the infection they had and then received an emergency patch from the ISP. Uh, nice. Earlier this month, researchers at security firm Bad Cyber reported that uh, the same uh, one-two port combination of exploit hit the home router of some of their readers in Poland. So it's not just in Germany and Ireland. Um, yeah. So, uh, Shodan search engine, uh, which we know can, uh, connect, it scans different ports and basically makes, uh, searchable for banner strings and so on. Um, the Shodan search engine shows that there are 41 million devices that have port 7547 open. Oh, and at least 5 million of those expose the service TR064 to the outside world. So if we thought the Mirai botnet was bad when it was like 25,000 or 100,000 mm-hmm. or 400,000 mm-hmm. uh, devices, uh, you know, uh, imagine five, four or 5 million uh, cable modems on you know, fast German cable modems. <laughs> uh, they say the attack started shortly after researchers published attack code that exploits the exposed TR064 service. Uh, included as a module in the Metasploit exploitation framework, the attack code uh, ends up opening port 80 uh, web interface to enable remote administration. So they used the the system the ISPs use to update the config on the routers uh, and exploit a loophole in it to execute commands to open up the regular port 80 web administration interface right. to the internet, mm-hmm. where then they can start guessing the default username and password, which just, is usually <laughs> just like admin admin or whatever. Yeah. Uh, from there, the devices uh, use default or otherwise weak authentication and can be remotely commandeered and made to join botnets that carry out, carry out uh, internet crippling denial of service attacks. Or as we saw, or whatever times, you want, you can use them to bounce your own connections off of them yeah. so that, you know, when I'm stealing credit cards, it looks like you're doing it or whatever. Uh, to infect as many routers as possible, the exploits deliver three different uh, exploit files. Uh, they actually basically have a different version of the exploit for each different hardware platform. They have uh, one for big Indian MIPS, one for uh, different kind of oh, MIPS. Oh, sure. I guess they'd have ARM. to, wouldn't they? Yeah. So they actually have one for uh, two different kinds of MIPS and one for ARM. 
So no matter hmm. no matter what kind of device your modem is, they're going to try to exploit it. <laughs> they they got code for you. <laughs> yep. uh, just like the Metasploit, the malicious payloads uh, use the exploit to open the remote administration interface and attempt to log in using three different uh, default passwords. The attackers then go and close port 7547 to prevent other criminal enterprises from taking control of the device. Uh, or it's their property also, now. Yeah, so, so it's like now it's my motor. The other yeah. thing is that also stops the ISP from being able to use that interface to issue the updates. Sure. <laughs> we wouldn't want things patched. Yeah. This is, the malware itself is really friendly in that it closes the vulnerability once the router is infected. It performs the following two commands. It injects BusyBox, IP tables, uh, it adds an input rule for TCP port 74, or 7547 and drop. And it also does kill all minus nine telnet D. <laughs> so it disables Telnet and uh, blocks the uh, the TR064 port, uh, which should make the device secure until the next reboot. Uh, the first, um, you know, because it closes that port so no one else can infect it after. Right. So essentially uh, it it's fixed. <laughs> it's hard for the ISP to fix it. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, after a reboot, the machine, the, the router goes back to normal. Until somebody goes and replaces the firmware. Once they've opened up the web interface so they can go into the machine, most of the time the web interface has a way to let you overwrite the firmware with new firmware. Mm-hmm. Right? And so uh, I, I did this on purpose with the, the TP-Link routers we had. Uh, right. You know, log into the Linux web interface and give it a new firmware, and it overwrites Linux with FreeBSD, and yep. it, now it's a FreeBSD router. Yep, yep. Um, well, somebody could easily download the firmware off of one of these devices, modify it a little bit so that it's got the extra stuff they need to attack or whatever, and lock it down and and update that firmware. And then, you know, they could break the firmware update mechanism such that the only way to uh, ever be able to fix the device is to throw it away and get a different one. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to look at how they did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is it. So while uh, exploited routers will stop being vulnerable to other attackers, uh, that's, you know, the the person who infected it first still has... They access. own it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe if the white hats get out there and, and disable all this first, but, you know, it's up to the ISPs to fix it properly. In that particular regard, the ISPs could block inbound connections to port... Uh, I was just going to say... Four seven on their network. So the ISPs um, could solve this problem by just simply not allowing this traffic across their network. They do yeah, this for tons of protocols already. They block tons uh, of ports. I mean, uh, it, most ISPs only block mail SM, inbound. Right. Well, all, no. Inbound. Also, it's becoming at least here in the states, it's super common now. They block all the Samba, the SMB, SIF stuff. All that gets blocked well, now. <clears throat> so it seems like they do it. Uh, they'll do it on some occasions, at least. So if, yeah. so really, that uh, would so be at a least same... as a temporary thing. It seems like they could do that. Although they also maybe need to look, make sure that you know one infected machine inside their network isn't infecting all the other machines, uh, because in particular, you know, if when it's the ISP supplied router, unlike unlike with those Chinese webcams or um, security cameras, if the attack vector for this one is all the people on the same ISP, you can scan a fixed net block, right? What the Mirai normally does is uses a randomization function so that it scans IPs all out of order uh, so that it doesn't look like it's doing a scan, right? Because it's scanning the whole internet, so it can have lots of time between mm-hmm. ever hitting two sequential IP addresses. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if, you're, if you found one effective modem at an ISP, 
and it's mostly an ISP provided modem, why wouldn't you try to just scan that entire sure. IP range, the whole slash 19 or something, and probably find you have the most target rich environment there? So if I, most ISPs just blocked inbound 7547. Well, the ones that ship these exploitable routers right. really need to do it. But yeah, that seems like that. That seems like the people that should do it, though. That seems like mm-hmm. a pretty easy fix. Uh, interesting yeah, story. Like, if you look at the the actual link to the exploit database, you can see that basically all it's doing is uh, making the SOAP template that updates the NTP mm-hmm. servers. And instead of the name of an NTP server, it just has backticks and a shell command to execute. And then, boom, you own the machine. Hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, that exploit code is linked in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. Yep. And there's lots of detail in the Irish Technica article. Uh, but yeah, it's just interesting that they, that, you know, they go in and they run one firewall command to uh, drop the rule that blocks the internet from accessing port 80 on the, the router. And then once they take over, they add a rule blocking access to the exploit vector, but leaving access to port 80. Love that. I think it's brilliant. Yep. And then they just change the passwords and... And lock it down, and now it's their mm-hmm. modem, not yours. <laughs> Until you reboot it, and they, then they take it over again. Uh, well, Alan, you know what else is brilliant? That's our next sponsor. That's DigitalOcean. Go build yourself a system over at DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean. It's one word. You apply it to your account after you've created it, and you get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up really fast systems. Really nice, all backed by SSDs. They've got distros including Ubuntu, Debian, CoreOS, CentOS. They also have FreeBSD. And uh, they just recently rolled out Fedora 25, if you want to try something with Fedora 25. And they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Germany. I love their interface, though. That's really their hallmark feature, and they just have iterated so brilliantly over the years on the API and the interface. In fact, you know, this API is so slick. If you ever wanted to just play around, this could be a really great opportunity. There's a guide that shows you how to install and use the DigitalOcean agent for additional graphs for your droplets. Who doesn't love themselves some graphs and data? And they've got a great tutorial on that. They've also got tutorials on setting up all kinds of applications and services on Linux and FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. They also offer entire stacks of servers ready to go with all the applications loaded. they got the package signed from the upstream repos. They, it's, they really do a good job. I actually was always really adamantly against using any of their pre-configured systems just as a matter of principle until I started wanting to experiment with a bunch of different open source projects. And now it's a go-to way for me to like, I don't want to mess with setting up Docker. If I want to try out something in a Docker container for 15 minutes, I go deploy it on DigitalOcean. It's super fast. You can deploy in seconds. They have really reasonable pricing. Three cents an hour will get me two gigs of RAM, a two-core processor, 40 gigabyte SSD, and three terabytes of transfer. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean after you create your account to get a $10 credit. Last week, we gave Ubuntu a lot of grief for being able to bypass the encryption by, like, holding down enter, like, five times or whatever it was uh, for the yeah. disk encryption. And now this well, week— Well, it didn't actually bypass the encryption, though. All it, it bypassed did was the give prompt. you a shell, right. uh, but you still didn't have access to the encrypted data. 
So that was the important thing. Now, is this a little different this week? So now we got a Windows yeah. 10 story that, that, that smacks of this, familiarness. Uh, yes, except it's much, much worse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the headline here is that every Windows 10 in-place upgrade is a severe security risk. Uh, so during the update process, uh, with what I guess what Windows calls the feature updates, which is basically an actual upgrade to a newer version, uh, although it's basically they're doing these minor versions of Windows 10 instead of service packs, kind of. Uh, and they're doing them more frequently. So it's kind of a new thing. But anyway, uh, the way they do it is they actually boot into a Windows PE kind of like uh, working environment so that they can... Uh, not be using the disk, and then update your operating system, right? Hmm. So they're updating the operating system in place by booting into Windows PE and then doing a bunch of stuff to, to apply the update. Wow, that's complex, but okay. Makes uh, sense. Well, it, it, doing it that way so that you're not actually... Sure, you're not using the files you're updating. ...to be running Windows. Yeah, so like even the normal way you install Windows updates, uh, it just happens early on in Windows before Windows has started everything. This one's actually running out of a, you know, uh, a separate operating system, the, the Windows pre-install or pre-execution environment. Anyway, it turns out that during that update process, if you just hold down that shift plus F10, uh, it will pop a command prompt running as system, which is the highest privilege level possible on Windows. Right, yeah, that's, that's it. What makes it worse is this happens after the volume encryption keys have been loaded. Oh. So if you have a BitKeeper encrypted disk, uh, it's decrypted at this point. And so I have access to all of your files, Yikes. even though they're encrypted. That's not how it's supposed to work. No. Hmm. Uh, so, yes, uh, this is a big issue and it's uh, been there for a long time. Uh, the research says about a month ago, I finally got verification from the Microsoft product groups. Uh, not only... Do they know about this? But they have uh, begun working on a fix. Uh, you know, he says, uh, as I want to be known as a white hat, I had to wait until that uh, had happened before I could blog about it. But he says, uh, there is a small but crazy bug in the way that the feature update, previously known as upgrade, is installed. The installation is a new tool uh, and is done by re-imaging the machine with the image uh, installed by a small version of Windows called Windows PE, or pre-installation environment. Um, this is a feature for troubleshooting that allows the user to press shift plus F10 to get a command prompt. This sadly allows for access to the hard drive um, during an update. Uh, but so Microsoft has disabled BitLogger at that point, uh, you know, and he has a, a demonstration video there as well. He says the real issue here is that the ev uh, elevation of privilege that takes a non-admin to system. So root uh, on Windows, e even if it's a uh, BitLocker encrypted. Um, and of course, it doesn't require any external hardware or additional software. So if, say, you work in, at an office and you have only regular user access to your machine, uh, wait till the next time it does the Windows update thing and then shift F10 and then oop, my user is now administrator. And now I have administrator on my machine. That would have been very handy at the college where I didn't have administrator over the machine in my office, right? <laughs> no uh, kidding, right? <laughs> but, you know, you could also say, I walk away from my desk uh, and go to the bathroom or whatever because Windows is doing an update and it's going to be a little while. Uh, next guy over, he can just walk over to my machine, shift F10, and do whatever he wants to my machine. This is, uh, I'm watching the video right now. It's kind of slow, but it's fascinating to watch him go. Yeah. 
<laughs> totally possible. So there are a couple of ways to work around this as well. Um, so uh, in an email conversation with Bleeping Computer, the researcher reveals that because of certain defaults in Windows 10's configurations, computers uh, might be forced to perform an update even if the user is not present or uh, you know, hasn't logged in for a long period of time. Uh, you know, at some point, every computer that is not managed by uh, WSUS or SCCM uh, or something like that will be forced to uh, install the newer version of Windows. Windows has decided that there will be, uh, you know, the forcing the updates will be the default, mm-hmm. right? So that we stop having all those Windows XP computers that never get updated. Uh, researcher recommends that users not leave their computer unattended during a Windows 10 update and that users uh, consider using the Windows 10 LTSB or long time servicing branch version, uh, which doesn't get the uh, forced updates. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it says the, the LTSB version of Windows 10 is not affected by this as it doesn't automatically install upgrades for you. Okay. Or I guess just turn that off. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, furthermore, Leo says that if you're using uh, the, the Windows System Center Configuration Manager can block access to the command line interface during the update procedures if users add uh, a file called disablecmdrequest.tag uh, to their Windows directory under setup scripts. Uh, if they create that file in that folder, then the shift F10 thing will stop working. Uh, what I found really interesting about one of the implications that you could use with this attack is say you're the police and you've seized somebody's laptop, mm-hmm. but it's BitLocker encrypted. So uh, you can't access the files. Yes. Well, if you just wait a little bit and then, oh, look, now there's a new Windows update. So we'll boot up this laptop and just leave it sitting there at the login prompt. And then Windows will be like, hmm, this update needs installed and it's set to force and nobody's using the computer right now. Let me install this update. So reboot starts Windows PE, shift F10, boom, I have access to all the decrypted files. That is not that inconceivable. That is obviously something like, I mean, it's, it's for a very time-sensitive thing, it's not ideal for law enforcement. But if they have the time to wait for an update, they wouldn't know necessarily. But uh, I wonder what happens if you had a Windows 10 machine. Does it have to be the same install? Could, it, could you put the hard drive in another Windows 10 machine? It has to be the same install that's doing the update. What do you mean? Like, could you put this, could you take the hard drive out of a laptop and put it into another machine that's running Windows 10 and install an update on that computer and get access to the data on the other hard drive? I don't think so, because yeah. you need a BitLocker key. Yeah. Okay, that's what so I was you thinking. Have to be booting off so you would the, have to then, the only option would then be to wait for an update. But, yeah. Uh, but what's really concerning here is, and you'd have to have physical how access. Is the Windows PE thing getting the password or the key to decrypt your BitLocker? Windows itself must have. Right. It has a memory copy, but is it writing it to the disk so that it survives across the reboot? It must. It must. And is it outside the BitLocker encryption? Yeah. It must like, be. Because if exactly it's actually how is Windows PE mounting your supposedly encrypted disk such that it can do these updates? Uh, you know what? I bet what it is, Alan, is the key must be based on your password. So you supply the password. No? Yeah, but this is all done right. when you're not at your computer. Right, yeah. The yeah. whole point is that Windows Update is going to reboot your computer. Yeah. In the middle of the night <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of that. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it does that. Using the TPM hardware to store it temporarily or something? But I'm not, not sure. everybody has T. Maybe, I don't. Maybe it has a recovery key. Windows has a recovery key that it uses. 
for the last while. See, that EJB says that rec- uh, Windows, when you do BitLocker, generates a recovery key, and it has that recovery key, but it must store that recovery key outside the BitLocker protected... Well, if it's, if it's just writing the recovery key into the, the Windows system partition that's not yeah. encrypted, how, what stops... Cause there's a, so there's an extra partition that it creates that it writes the recovery key to. Yeah, but if it's sitting there unencrypted, what stops anybody else from using that to decrypt the disk and making BitLocker pointless? There must be something we're missing. Uh, sure, but yeah, in general, it seems like BitLocker is really not that robust. Yeah, as... I, I find it hard to use anything that's built into the OS or from the vendor, I should say. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say anything built no, in the OS. That's the wrong way to put much, it. But anything that's not open source, obviously, has that's a better source. way to put it. Like I, I was, what I was really thinking is, I wouldn't really trust Apple or Microsoft's built-in encryption. Um, yeah, if uh, I really, really cared. If I'm really, just the other problem is, like, what's your threat model? Is it is it is it your it, nosy it, sister? It, it, that, but it's also how do you make something usable and secure? Yeah, right? you like, don't. If, if the whole point of real disk encryption is that there's the one key, and if you lose the password, your data is gone forever. And then there's customer service and customer experience where it's like, I want my data to be secure, but I want to, you know, I need a recovery key. And then there's the complexities of sometimes law enforcement needs access too, so that has to be built well, in. <laughs> I'll save that for the roundup. I got a story in the roundup about that. Uh, any other thoughts on this story? Uh, no, not for that one. All right. Well, then let's talk about IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnaps, where you go to learn more about them and support our show. IX Systems builds incredible hardware for your workload small business, large business, huge enterprise, incredible hardware built around these great Intel processors. IXSystems.com. Slash tech snap. That's where you land. Then check out their site. From the free NAS Mini up to the IX Rack, they got something for you. And over on the blog, I noticed a new uh, Server Envy post, the Microblade, Alan. This thing yeah. looks, that doesn't look so micro to me, but... Uh, well, that, that's the 6U version. There is a 3U version. Okay. So I've, I've heard of the, the uh, SuperMicro has the Micro Cloud, sure. which was like a 3U that had like maybe eight machines in it. And I was like, ooh. And then they're like, Here, here's a 6U version that holds 28 machines. I'm sorry, what? 28? 28 machines. Oh, my gosh. That works out to be a 896 cores of uh, CPU processing. Wow. And then, and then they 50 have terabytes of if, ECC RAM. <laughs> well, no, I think that uh, – careful when you're reading the numbers. One of those is for if you fill the rack with these. Yeah, yeah. Not just one of them. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh. That, oh. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. If it was a rack full of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. If you took 42 U's and put a bunch of these in it. But uh, what's really interesting though is that one of these fully specced out with Xeon D's. Yeah. Is only what is it like 1800 watts? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, if if with just one of them, if you're doing uh, virtual desktop instances or VDI, um. You could create seven thousand virtual desktops on spread across the twenty-eight machines, uh, and they would end up only costing you like thirty dollars per virtual desktop. Wow! Yeah, this is really nuts. So the blades are powered by, like Alan just said, the Intel Xeon D processors, which have hyper-threading, obviously Turbo Boost. They have VTX and VTD. Yep, they have so eight cores. Everything. Eight cores would be yeah. This is. Wow. The, yeah, the, so the uh, Xeon Ds are the new 14 nanometer microarchitecture, too. Yeah, so they actually have higher uh, interprocessor communications than it has well. Yeah. But if you see the picture you have up there, you can see far off in the distance, you see the CPU and the RAM, mm-hmm. 
right? And then in the middle, you see a blank spot. Yeah, like a That's hard drive tray. A whole second node goes. Oh, oh, right, in one tray. And then close up. You see, that's the there's a blank spot and then a hard drive. Yeah, uh, that's a SSD. Yeah. So the blank one is for the hard drive for the the closer one, and the one you're looking oh. at there is a hard drive for the far away one. So each of those blades is actually two complete systems. That is uh, so awesome. CPU, RAM, and uh, and they're SSDs. they're narrower. I'd say they're about the half the they seem like they're they're about half the width of a, of what I would used to associate as a blade. Like they seem like, I mean, they're mm-hmm. just this is so cool. This is yeah, this in the uh, back is just all power supplies. Yeah, well, for sure, right? Well, what's nice is that um, part of this design in particular is about reducing the cabling. If you imagine trying to, if you did like 28 one U servers and you put them in a rack, then you're going to have like two one gigabit or 10 gigabit uh, network cables coming out of the back of each one, plus a dedicated cable for the management system, uh, plus the dual power cables, uh, and plus any other stuff. That's going to be a lot of cables. Whereas with this chassis design, you get a bunch of 40 gig QSFP connectors, or those can be broken out with an adapter to four 10 gig adapters if you don't have 40 gig equipment. But you get uh, like 80 gigabits of networking out of the back of it, out of just a couple of ports. Uh, and then you also have a, a unified management system. So you hook up one set for the IPMI and you get half the machines done at once. Uh, and so with only a couple of cables, you have all the power, all the networking, and all the management you need for 28 whole computers. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Check them out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And a big thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Wow. That's awesome. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap's where you go. So the observant of you out there will notice that we are closely approaching episode 300, which blows my mind, Alan. Really is really kind of incredible, and that is going to be a major milestone for this show. And so there's going to be a transition that starts to take place, and we wanted to give you guys a heads up about it because I think it's something that behind the scenes we've been talking about for a while, but we wanted to communicate it to you, and we were pretty much firm on all of the details. And so I'm kind of nervous to say, but I'm also very excited to announce that at 300 we'll be making a big switch. Alan and I. We'll step aside, and we will make room for new blood to come into the show with new perspectives and new ideas and tons of industry experience. Some of them, some of you out there already know these people. Some of you out there have probably had many conversations with these people. They're people from the Jupiter Broadcasting community. Um, and uh, are we ready to say who they are? Do you want to announce it? Sure. I'm ready. Uh, so uh, the, let's start with uh, with Dan because th- this is this was yes, so Alan's me. Alan's replacement. It was Alan's hand selected replacement, and uh, I'm super excited about Dan. And I got to meet Dan in person and meet BSD. So why Dan? Yes. Uh, so uh, Dan Langill uh, has been a close friend of mine for a while. But what was interesting was a couple of years ago at BSD Can, I told him about the the podcast, and so he added it to his iTunes, and then. I started watching on Twitter as I watched him start all the way at the beginning or the end of it and watch every single episode of TechSnap. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, this next year at BSD Candy, he's wearing the TechSnap t-shirt. And, and we talked about it quite a bit. And uh, he is, you know, uh, he's been a sysadmin much longer than me. He's uh, the person, his blog about being a sysadmin and the little tips and tricks and so on that he's learned over the years is what... Um, I followed when I was first getting into BSD, you know, his, mm. his blog about, uh, you know, being a sysadmin was 
really what helped me get my start. Uh, and, you know, now with his day job being a sysadmin at the, the Cisco Talos uh, research group means that he has uh, lots of experience and, and hands-on knowledge about exactly the type of stuff that we'd like to cover on this show. Yeah. And I thought that uh, now that I don't have uh, the time to be able to do two podcasts every week because being on the FreeBSD core team and uh, my business keeping me very, very busy, um, that I wanted to make sure that TechSnap got to keep going, uh, even if I couldn't do it anymore, uh, and make sure that it was somebody who I knew would actually be able to, uh, you know, talk intelligently about this stuff and also answer people's questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people are really going to like Dan. And so I'm going to be really jealous when he does a better job than me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you know, legitimately, who's going to do a better job than me will be Wes from Linux Unplugged, my co-host. And uh, it's something I've been thinking about recently, was sort of a fantasy, is I realized doing Linux Unplugged with Wes that uh, he's a better sysadmin than I ever was. And he's now working with technologies that have come along since I have been in the industry. I've just now that I'm a full time podcaster, I haven't been working on some of this stuff day to day. And some of the coolest technologies that I I barely kind of understand and follow, just so that way I can stay informed. He's hands on with them every single day. And so Wes has been on Linux Unplugged for a while now, and I've watched him really grow as a podcaster from a newbie to somebody who's who's really comfortable and has a great rapport with the audience. And he has brought some of the best technical content to Linux Unplugged over the last few months that we have with the, some of the deepest technical content we've ever done. So I think the two of them with fresh perspectives is going to be kind of a lot like when Alan and I started back in episode one, uh, kind of from the beginning again. And I am hoping you guys will stick with it and give mm-hmm. them a chance because – just like we were a little rough at the beginning. They might be a little rough we at the beginning because really they're new. But, yeah, I think they're they're taking something that's really been put together with a great community. They both follow the show. Wes also watches. And I, I think they're positioned to really take off. And if you guys stay with them, I think they have a chance to really make maybe another 300 great episodes of the show. So Alan and I are here for the rest of the uh, run till 300. Yep. And then we got a new, year, year, and a new year and a new and a new text. I'm a little nervous because it's like this has been my life now for so long. But I'm also super excited for them because we couldn't have picked better people to replace right. us. So, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I definitely want to make sure I had someone that, you know, I didn't want to just have the show go downhill after. I thought <laughs> it, right? um, yeah, yeah. But also it's like just thinking about the fact that it's basically been six years of every single Thursday without missing one ever mm-hmm. we've pre-recorded a couple times but that always meant having two plus weeks notice that we knew we were going to be missing that thursday mm-hmm. and every single thursday has still been we've done a text yeah yeah like the one time you were gone and we pre-recorded ahead of time and i had a thursday off i didn't know what to do <laughs> no <laughs> it's so weird when, it's like, when that so happens much work done on a thursday how does this work i know and since the show began you know uh the business for me has grown uh, just insanely and so i have i have a way more responsibilities there but i also have new projects that i'm taking on and you've obviously taken on a whole bunch of projects with with the FreeBSD community so it's it's a good time for us to do a nice clean break with a new year 300 episodes without missing a run is our intention we're at 295 right now uh and so now i'll beat you (laughs) yeah i know right and so and don't forget too uh alan's not going away he'll still be doing the bsd now program so you can still get your weekly jude yep every wednesday and uh in fact speaking of bsd now sandboxing cohabitation i thought those two things weren't possible episode 170 it's just the two things that happen the episode happens to be about okay (laughs) Uh, the thing about the pledge sandboxing for open bsd and then we have 
an instruction guide on how to have a root on ZFS pool dual booting Linux and FreeBSD. So you have FreeBSD mm. and Linux living in the same ZFS pool and letting you flip back and forth between them. That's fancy. Lots of people have wanted that for a while. Yeah. So that's episode 170. So a, a tutorial on how to do that. Cool, man. Check it out. The BSD Now program is a good time to get it because we're at the halfway mark of the show. So you can start downloading the HD version and get full definition Jude with episode 170 of the BSD Now program. And with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your email to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. I probably should have mentioned this before we uh, left the uh, IX systems talking about uh, Meet BSD and all that stuff. But now, after a couple of weeks, I am happy to announce that the videos I recorded on my trip to Meet BSD and at Meet BSD are out. Really, it's right now. Um, I would say four of them, although you could might as well just watch the first one because it's only four minutes long. But there's four, if you include our meetup that we did with all the Jupiter Broadcasting peeps. Uh, you can see a little bit of Alan and Dan giving their uh, ZFS talk at Meet BSD, including one of my favorite typical Alan Jude moments is in there. And uh, tomorrow, if you're following it, by the way, you can find it at YouTube.com slash Chris Fisher. I probably should have said that. Tomorrow, I think the best video I've ever created in my life comes out. It's a big video, literally life-changing, and I put a lot of work into it, and I managed to pull off some things that I've never done before. So check it out, youtube.com slash Chris Fisher, and all the ones up there right now are all relevant to Meet BSD. And then starting in like two days, it's me leaving California. So they're coming out daily until next Tuesday right now is the plan. Cool. And then the project's all wrapped up. The grand I, I've only, I think I've seen the first two. And then that was all I could find. And then I stumbled into a video of you and Noah installing a Yeah, the NAS and the switch and the UPS. A couple of tips. Uh, don't put the NAS near a subwoofer. <laughs> I know. I know. We unplug the subwoofer. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Thump, so, thump, yeah. thump. <laughs> Hard drives plus vibration. Yeah, not good. Not good. Not, good. not going down the road either. Going down the road is also bad. Uh, all right. So we got some emails. I wonder if you have any tips for this one. Chris wrote in, not this Chris, another one, and said, hi, Alan and Chris. Uh, please, could you tell me if there's any two-factor authentication available for PFSense's web interface or the shell? We actually got this email in. I don't know if it was both from Chris, but we got it in twice this week. Hmm. So I don't know. Maybe it, maybe SSH so might general, be easier. most of the SSH two-factor things that would work on FreeBSD should work on a PFSense. Although, because of the way the PFSense file system is structured, it might be slightly more difficult to set up. Okay. Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, for the web interface, I'm not aware of anything. Uh, it'd be a good suggestion to make on their forum, maybe. Yeah, I looked around uh, before the SSH, show, and I didn't see anything. Yeah, for SSH, uh, most of the things that will work on vanilla FreeBSD would work on PFSense. It's just a little bit harder to configure them, or the configuration will have to go in a non-standard place because of the way uh, PFSense is structured as a right. it's currently i think most of the versions that are out now are nano bsd based i know their newer versions are going to be zfs based i don't know which version that starts at though oh interesting uh, and so it um pfsense is currently in the process of moving to something more like a package you would run on top of vanilla FreeBSD. um making it much easier to handle things like this. Ideal. Uh, now, I, 
In my reading, I did see a lot of the services you run on top of PFSense, like OpenVPN and other things. Those are two-factorable. Yeah, because those, you know, they have their standard config files. So if you can two-factor them on one OS, you can do it on the other. Yeah. Uh, it's just for the, yeah, the web interface, I don't think so. The SSH, yes, although it might be a bit of extra work to set it up. So Dreams Void writes in, he wants to put all his eggs in one dangerous basket. He says, hey, Chris and Alan, I have a stupid idea, and that's to put all my eggs in one basket. How? I'm going to use Unraid on Metal, which is a Linux-based virtualization that makes it super easy to do PCI pass-through, which is like a checkbox. Then I'm going to install Ubuntu, Windows, and FreeNAS instances on top of it. I will do nope, PCI pass-through. <laughs> what? If, how are you doing Unraid on the Metal and then PCI pass-through? Well, so the Unraid virtualizer does PCI pass-through. So you 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 so you set up right, Unraid. So are the disks in an Unraid, or are the disks being passed through into FreeNAS? Uh, I don't know. I think it would depend on. So you have the option in Unraid to choose which devices get passed through, and so you could you could just have it storage so on Unraid. Isn't the file system right? It's... You don't have to use it that way. You could just use it for its virtualization features, which it sounds like he's doing. Which is weird because I swear there was something called Unraid before that was just a file system. Yeah, yeah. Why is there something called Unraid that's a hypervisor? Uh, well, so Unraid is a NAS, Linux-based NAS product that over the last couple of years has added in a whole bunch of these kinds of features. Okay. Yeah. People love it. So if you're passing through the disk directly to FreeNAS, you're really not using Unraid, and so you should be okay. Yeah, so basically Unraid's the virtualizer. He says, my graphics card to Windows, and I'll set my graphics card to Windows so I can NVIDIA game stream to a Raspberry Pi I'm using it as my desktop. This guy is crazy. My questions are, what can I do to help a single point of failure other than moving the OS to other machines? I've got another Pi I could set up to replicate the array of FreeNAS and maybe VMs, but I'm not sure how I would do that. I'm sorry, don't mean to laugh. It's just a giant, if it's just a giant tap snapshot, although it's only four terabytes a day. So he's got Nextcloud on Ubuntu. He's going to use a network share on FreeNAS with some form of array. Windows uh, using FreeNAS shares as well for like Steam games. All virtualized on top of Unraid. What suggestions do you have to help with one giant single point of failure for protecting my data? Love the show. Well, Keep it the depends on the, what you mean by single point of failure. So if you're using FreeNAS and passing through the disk and using like RAID Z2, then any one hard drive is not going to take you out. Now, if the power goes out on that hypervisor machine then yes everything's gonna be offline that's what i was gonna say ups redundant power get good power get ups's get redundant power if you can um like in the end they're you know watch your temperature yeah but like if the power is out at your house then you probably don't care that your nas is down right you know that that's why i'm saying they'll go with a ups because then you can have an auto shutdown which would be good right that's that's how you're gonna have data integrity really yeah. But yeah, so Raspberry Pi is a point of failure from data integrity as long as you're using RAID Z2 and you're using real disks pass through, not using silliness like giving virtual disks to FreeNAS from the unraid, actual unraid thing, um, then it's probably okay. Uh, but yeah, like if the power goes out and takes out your NAS, your unraid box, then you're not going to care that you can't stream games to your TV that is also out of power. Right. Uh, yeah. Very much. All right. I'll take that. Oh, yeah. I take that uh, answer, Alan. Yeah. Uh, replicating the FreeNAS to another machine is a good step. If you break your data up into different data sets, then it's not just one giant snapshot. You'll have a bunch of separate smaller snapshots, go. which makes it a little easier to replicate and or to say, hey, I want to replicate all these important files and not these other files. There you go. There you go. Uh, and Jackpot in our chat room wants you to know that you should buy ECC RAM. 
He's he's very very concerned. Yeah, if you can, but I'm sure the unraid thing isn't going to come with that. So <laughs> the unraid thing, Excel. But while we're talking about virtualization, let's talk about ESXi. So this comes in from Carl, and he says, when virtualizing on ESXi, our practice has been to create VMDKs on a ZFS-backed storage network. I'd like to know if there is a safe and reasonably pre-performant way to do the opposite, running ZFS on the VMDKs for certain corner cases. I know that the common best practice is to give ZFS direct control of hard disks with simple host bus adapters, removing abstractions as much as hard and things like hardware RAID. That accurately describes all of our current setup. I'm imagining an alternative scenario for current v or for certain VMs where there would be a benefit to running ZFS directly within the guest VM, but without needing to pass through an entire HBA. I can imagine a scenario in which multiple simple non-RAID disk drives owned by ESXi could each be defined as an ESXi data store comprising a single VMDK. On the ESXi guest, the VM uh, running ZFS could assemble the VMDK data stores into VDEVs the same way VDEVs are normally assembled from disks. Are there any risks to data integrity in such a scenario? Uh, yeah, because you can't... Um, when ZFS asks, you know, hey, is this data all the way on the hardware, ESXi might lie and say it is when it's actually not all the way written into the VMDK. And also, the file system used by ESXi underneath to store the VMDK isn't copy on write, so if the power goes out, it's unclean. And, you know, who knows what your data ends up looking like. Now, ZFS might be able to recover from that, but it's, yeah, it's not very ideal. Your ideal way to do it would be to create almost a diskless VM where it's actually pulling in ZFS over NFS or something. Okay, I'm about uh, to so, tell you about this. So for, for playing around, uh, running ZFS inside the VM is fine. You know, it's a great way to play with ZFS. Uh, it's just not as good for data integrity because, you know, you end up caching the data in the VM and outside of the VM. And oh. with all that caching, it's not invalidated properly. And, you know, you can't be sure so it's that not about not actually reaching the disk all the time. So it's not about, like what he found in his research is that people were quoting best practices about not getting smart data. And it's not about that. It's a, I, I don't, I've never heard about this, the fact that you're caching inside the VM and outside the well, VM. Especially, it depends. If you're running ZFS on the storage and then ZFS in the VM, yeah. you're running ZFS twice, right? Right. Uh, but also, yeah. Um, but you, you, the biggest concern there is it's not so much smart data, which we will lose, but just if there is an error on the disk or something, it'll keep retrying underneath or something instead of giving the error to ZFS. Ah, uh, so it won't handle so failures yeah, as elegantly. Yeah, uh, the chat room suggests probably what makes the most sense is instead of using VMDKs, if on the underlying thing you could do iSCSI and have the ESXi use iSCSI to real disks uh, as the way of providing the disks into the VM, that would probably be a lot better than doing VMDKs. Yeah, VMDKs have some features, and there's, they're trying to do copy on write and stuff of their own, and it just there's, there's that much more complexity that has a chance to go wrong. He's hoping so to assemble those get, VMDKs as VDEVs. Yeah, and, and have redundancy. Yeah, but you, you never know what ESXi is going to do with that VMDK. Whereas if you pass raw disks, instead of having, to, I understand you don't want to, you, you know, you have one host bus adapter with lots of drives, and you don't want to give them all to one VM. Uh, so maybe iSCSI is the best way to go to pass individual disks, you know, uh, these six individual disks into this VM and these six into this other VM. Okay. Uh, hopefully uh, that's possible for you and it's probably your best bet. 
Uh, otherwise, for questions like this one in particular, uh, check out the second or third interview we did with Josh Petzl on BSD Now uh, because we asked him these questions and he knows a lot more about it than I do. I don't use VMware very much, but mm. uh, he, working at iX Systems, deals with all our customers that do VMware all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, George writes in, or George writes in uh, with uh, a ZFS question to, uh, to sort of finish out the question rounds before we get to the Backblaze uh, stats. So he says, <clears throat> greetings. I have a pair of NASs set up at different locations using Tink VPN through a DigitalOcean droplet. One is my main NAS at home, and the other is my at my parents' house four hours away. Both are running Open Media Vault with ZFS with two two-terabyte drives and a single mirror set. So the total is a little bit less than one terabyte used. Uh, currently, I'm using SyncThing to sync between the two NASs. It works well enough, but I wanted to look into using ZFS Send in place of SyncThing. A couple of questions regarding this, though. One, is there any way to do this without sending everything again? My upstream is only 5 megabits a second, so having to send the entire snapshot would be painful, and the pool names are different as well. But I'm pretty sure I can rename it, or would that even be necessary? So that's part yeah, one. The pool names definitely don't need to be the same. Sadly, you will have to send the data again. Uh, even if the data is the same, it's laid out differently and has different object numbers. And ZFS really depends on having them have the same ah. uh, globally unique IDs all the way across. Uh, Drive there. So it's worth it. The advantage to using sync thing is that updates made from either side get synced bidirectionally, where ZFS send is one direction only. Now, if you have... You know, a data set at your house with all your stuff and a second data set with your, that's the read-only copy of your parents' stuff and just have the opposite on the other end, then that's fine because each way is only going one direction. But if you have uh, some shared directory that is being written to by both sides, sync thing is a better solution. There you go. And then part two of the question, the remote NAS is extremely subpar hardware. Since it's only on an offsite backup, I haven't been too worried about it. It's an Atom D525 with four gigs of RAM. Is that going to cause issues with ZFS send? Sync things mostly CPU usage, and since it's doing virtually nothing else, that hasn't really been an issue. Thanks for the time. Uh, the ZFS send is probably going to be even easier on the CPU uh, because all you're really the only bottleneck really will be uh, the CPU to SSH encrypt or whatever over your tunnel, uh, and you know usually with, with your uh, internet speeds is not going to be enough to saturate the CPU at all. Good stuff. All right. So uh, it's that time of year again. We get the Q3 2016 update from Backblaze on their hard drive death stats. I like the headline, less is more. This is compelling. Where are we going? What do we see? Uh, well, part of the other thing they did during this is describe their migration by getting rid of most of their two terabyte drives and replacing them with eight terabyte drives. Oh, interesting. It's like, so we ended up, actually up ended up with slightly fewer hard drives for the first time ever, but we went from nine terabytes to 40 terabytes of storage. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, we have the stats for just what happened between July 1st and September 30th. Uh, and you can see they have uh, mostly single-digit failures. Uh, they have, you know, 278 of the Seagate 4-terabyte uh, drives died, but considering they have 34,000 of those instead of, you know, like 900 of the, the HDST ones, <laughs> that makes a difference. Uh, so, yeah, in general, we see uh, failure stats where... Uh, most of them are about on target at the three-ish percent, although the HDST ones are doing even better than that, although the uh, Western Digital 6-terabyte drives were doing much worse than that. Uh, but when we average it out over a longer period of time, it doesn't look so bad. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, if you, uh, yeah, the next tables are talking about their migration where they had uh, like 4,400 2-terabyte drives. Mm-hmm. 
which gave them just less than nine terabytes of storage. And then when they ended Q3 2013, they had uh, 5,108 terabyte drives, which gave them 41 terabytes of oh. storage. Oh, all right. All right. It's like, that's some storage you have there. <laughs> I'll take it, please. I could use that. I could, I could, I could use that. Yeah. I really and could. then comparing the failure stats on their two terabyte drives, where the HGST drives had an annualized failure rate of 1.6%, uh, and they found that so far, the eight terabyte drives have the same 1.6% failure rate. So um, because it's fewer drives, that adds up to even better for them. But in general, uh, going to bigger drives is better for them, even if they fail more. But currently, it looks like they're failing about the same amount, and so they're quite happy. Hmm. Good for them. That sounds like a great move. They're out of the funk. Yep. Wow. But yeah, so the general takeaways are that the HDSG drives are the most reliable, although they have mo- uh, they're still buying mostly the Seagate uh, four and eight terabyte drives uh, because they uh, are easy to get in high quantities. They have good reliability and they have the best smart data. Uh, Western Digital drives are they found have really poor smart data, like don't uh, give any signal before they die and just have fewer of the stats that are useful. Uh, and then, yes, we talked about their migration from two to eight terabyte drives and, and so on. Uh, and then, yeah, but the next table here actually shows the overall looking from 2013 through to the end of September. Uh, we can see their annualized failure rates that some of the Western Digital drives uh, did the worst there with their uh, the Western Digital two terabyte drives. Uh, in total, uh, Oh, it doesn't say how many they actually had of the two terabyte drives, but they were in service for 66,553 days, of which 15 of them died, leading to an annualized failure rate of 8.2%. Hmm. But uh, the Seagate four terabyte drives, they've had in service for 20 million days. Oh. Uh, but, you know, if, if you have 1,000 drives in service for one day, that's 1,000 drive days. So if you have 35,000 drives in service for two years, it adds up real quick, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and they have a, a million of the Seagate 6-terabyte drives, of which they've seen a failure rate of 1.2%, uh, which is looking good. Uh, and then they have the Seagate 8-terabyte drives, uh, of which they've had 18 fail for a failure rate of 1.6%. So it looks like the the new Seagate drives, the... Um, Looking at the model numbers, I think these are the uh, Barracuda line, not the Iron Wolf line, okay. which is the NAS drives, which are slightly more money. Uh, I would, you know, Backblaze doesn't buy those. It would be interesting to see uh, reliability stats comparing yeah, the two. I agree. Because I think the price difference is about $20 a drive, which for Backblaze would add up if you're buying 35,000 drives. Uh, but for your home rig with maybe six or eight drives, it might actually end up, you know, uh, if the drive is slightly more reliable, it might be worth it. I love they publish this. Uh, and they also have a, a video. They have a webinar, 45 minutes worth, if you want to sign up and, and look at that as well. Now, that's hardcore. That If you watch that, you're, you're officially hardcore. Yeah. Uh, and then to recap, they're talking about their thoughts. They're evaluating cons- uh, if they want to migrate all the three terabyte drives to Seagate's new 10 terabyte drives. Although those are still relatively pricey and... Uh, Although per gigabyte, they're not bad, but being the very top end of size of drives you can get, they're slightly more than smaller drives. And, you know, uh, they have the space to be able to just 
buy more slightly smaller drives for you know whichever drive having has the lowest price per gigabyte it makes most sense for them generally although at some point you know buying more uh, fewer 10 terabyte drives rather than the equivalent number of drives to get the same storage space in say four terabyte drives ends up saving them a lot of power maybe so you know many considerations there mm-hmm so we have a link to that with the stats. Uh, some of the most interesting tidbits already broken out in the show notes, uh, linked over there at uh, 295. So look for TechSnap 295 at the com website, and you'll find it all there. So also, while you're there, send us in your questions. Get it into us over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just put something that would catch my attention in the subject line if you email us directly. That's your best bet. Now with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from the subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And you probably heard about this first story this week. The San Francisco Muni was hit with ransomware, and they had to let passengers ride for free. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. kind of a good deal. Uh, so, basically, you know, ransomware is going around scanning for vulnerabilities and infecting the machines. Uh, they found a apparently I don't know the the message from the bad guy is machine translated from Russian or Ukrainian or something, so it's a bit hard to understand. But it sounds like it was some kind of Java exploit, and that the Moody might have still been using Windows two thousand. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> shocker. Uh, so they couldn't. Now people were freaking out, but like it didn't affect the trains or the safety systems. Like the no, trains still the ran. Sales, ticket sales system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and Krebs but, uh, has a story on it as well. A ransom of a hundred bitcoins, which is about seventy three thousand dollars. You are hacked. Your HDD is encrypted. Yeah, is this this Krebs has a picture here, which appears to be the same malware from a yes. cell phone now, from the nineteen nineties. Interesting. So Krebs has a follow up to this story, hmm. where the hacker who did this uh, was hacked. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so uh, a security researcher uh, saw the news article about the San Francisco Moody, and so he looked at the email address, which is uh, cryptom27 at yandex.com, and he went there and brute-forced the secret questions and answers on that account and reset the password. Uh, Once he dug into it, he found in the settings that it was uh, set up with a backup email address of cryptom2016 at yandex.com and then he brute forced that one which happened to use the same secret questions and answers and in it found uh various messages and so on uh including other people that uh had been extorted this is a they found uh, 100 bitcoins may seem like a lot but it's apparently not far from the usual payday for this attacker uh, November 20th, hacked emails show that he successfully extorted 63 bitcoins, or about $45,000, from a U.S.-based manufacturing firm. Uh, they found in total that he had made about $140,000 U.S. Uh, from various victims at this point. Uh, he says, uh, this is almost certainly a conservative estimate on his overall earnings within the past few months. Uh, the source who hacked the accounts said he was unable to hack yet another Yandex inbox, uh, that used the username w88990665 at yandex.com, and that one appears to have been used in uh, other strains of the malware. Uh, copies of the messages shared with the author answered many questions raised by news media, uh, specifically 
it turns out the SFMTA was uh, not specifically targeted. Uh, messages sent to the attacker's uh, address show a financial relationship with at least two different hosting providers. The credentials uh, needed to manage one of these servers were included in the attacker's inbox in plain text. Uh, so the so the bad guy rented a server or a VPS somewhere, and they, as part of the setup, sent him the root username and password. And they're sitting in his inbox. So when they hacked his email, they were able to yeah. get into his servers. Yeah. You got to change uh, that default email or a default yep. password if that ever happens. Yep. Uh, so Krebs got his friend Alex Holden to dig into those servers. Uh, and he says, it appears our attacker has been using a number of tools which enable the scanning of large portions of the Internet and several specific targets uh, uh, for vulnerabilities. The most common vulnerability uses WebLogic unserialized exploit, specifically targeting uh Oracle's uh, Primavera project portfolio management software. Uh, according to review of email messages from the Krypton27 account shared uh, by the source, uh, the attacker routinely offered to help victims secure their system from other hackers for a small number of extra Bitcoins after they paid the ransom. That's funny. In one case, a victim had uh, just forked over 20 Bitcoin ransom, seemed all too eager to pay more for tips on how to plug the security holes uh, that got him hacked in the first place. In return, the hacker pasted a link to a web server and urged the victim to install a critical security patch from the company's Java application. This is, uh, read this and install patches before you connect your server to the internet again, the attacker said, linking to an Oracle advisory for the security hole. Although, he could have just as easily linked to another virus and infected them again. Really? Uh, he says, in many cases, the extortionist told the victims their data would be gone forever if they didn't pay the ransom within 48 hours or less. In other instances, he threatens to increase the ransom each day that they don't pay. Uh, and then uh, they dig into actually trying to figure out uh, who the person behind the email account is. So if you're interested in more in that, you should check out the Krebs article. Very detailed, as usual. As usual. Very nice, Mr. Jude. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to mention just a brief update. We are following the Snoopers <clears throat> Charter law that just passed, you know, and it, it appears that there's a real. I mean, there, it feels like this one part of this law that is now coming to light would have caused a huge upset in the U.S. Among many, many of the unpleasant things in the Investigatory Powers Act is the ability, to, apparently, for the U.K. government to undermine encryption and demand surveillance backdoors. Um, in fact, in effect, the U.K. government has written into law a version of the much-hated uh, Burr-Feinstein bill proposed in the U.S., which would have done the same thing. But the the backlash, you know, it derailed that, thankfully. Um, and so this the, it reads, um, obligations relating to the removal by a relevant operator of electronic protection applied by or on behalf of that operator to any communications or data. Um, yeah. The fact that the government doesn't understand how this can't be done properly the way they want technical uh, capability the government really means backdoors and deliberate security weaknesses yeah yeah it's the investigator report or uh, the uh snoopers charter is one of the one of the worst things that we've seen in in a long time on this show um and it has massive ramifications like how is that going to affect open source how is that going to affect things projects like pfsense and open ssh yep. no and you won't be able to download it in the uk is the worst case i suppose i remember geocities Back in the day. So is this data? Is this the data center from GeoCities? Yes. Yeah, so this is a picture of uh, GeoCities' cage at the Exodus data center in 1999. Awesome. And it talks a little bit about what some of the hardware is. But mostly it's just giant shelves and shelves of disks connected uh, to some sunboxes. 
Wow. They were using NFS in RAID 4 with the with the waffle file system right anywhere file layout waffle file That's, system uh, <laughs> netapp isn't it i think it's netapp that is waffle yeah mm. it's awesome dude that's great there's more than one picture there's a lot of pictures oh, yeah. uh, you see what some of the wiring look like yeah wow check that uh, that mean, is it, a trip it down even memory has lane. stuff about the earthquake proofing cuz they had all these racks towering with hard drives all over the top and they didn't want them to fall over right just so the uh, the uh, friends across the pond don't feel left out, the FBI is gaining those expanded hacking powers we warned you about. Uh, they, it looked like it was all on track to be interrupted, but a last-ditch effort in the Senate to block or deny the rule changes that would expand the U.S. government's hacking powers failed yesterday, despite concerns the changes would jeopardize the privacy rights of innocent Americans. Now, this is really this was being really fought by Ron Wyde, Democratic senator out of Oregon. He attempted three times to delay the changes which take effect today, and allow U.S. judges, they'll be able to issue search warrants to give the FBI the authority to remotely access computers in any jurisdiction, potentially even overseas. Um, the, uh, the, it was also thanks to uh, John Cornyn of Texas that, uh, this, the, that uh, Wyden was blocked. The changes allow judges to issue warrants in cases when a suspect is simply using anonymizing technology, such as Tor, to conceal a location of his or her computer. Uh, or if your computer looks to be hacked or infected. If your computer's been hacked, we're allowed to hack it too. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Well, that's too bad. I mean, what it really gets me is using Tor is enough justification. It would, or, or probably a VPN because it's anonymizing. They're going to, they probably claim a VPN mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So the only, I think the only appropriate response is for all of us to double down on our uses of VPN encryption and Tor. We just have to normalize it. It's the only thing you can do or come up with something else. Uh, Momo, Momo Fox Fox <laughs> has a tweet that's made it into the roundup this week. Yes. So this is a, a screenshot from I'm not sure which forum or whatever, but uh, one of my favorite programming stories on how Insomniac Games exploited their own game to patch a bug. Oh. So this is the story of the game Ratchet and Clank Up Your Arsenal, uh, which was an online title that shipped without the ability to patch itself. So it was one of the early online uh, console games and it didn't have the ability to patch itself. So the game downloads and displays an end-user license agreement each time it's launched. That's just an ASCII text file stored in a static buffer. This buffer is filled from the server without checking that the size is within the buffer's capability. Uh, So, you know, if the server were ever to send it too large of a text, it would overflow. So we exploited this fact to cause the EULA download to overflow the static buffer far enough to also write uh, to a known global variable. This variable handles... uh, uh, this variable happens to be the function callback handler for a specific network packet. Once this handler was installed, we could send the network packet and cause a jump to the address with the overwritten data. Uh, the address was a pointer to some payload code that was stored earlier in the EULA data. Now, valuable data did exist between the end of the EULA buffer and the overwritten global. So our first job was to design a payload code that would overflow the EULA buffer, but actually overwrite the important data in the middle with the same data so as to actually not destroy it. So they had to construct a EULA that was the, you know, EULA text, a bunch of padding, and then when it overflows the buffer, it's actually going to be exactly the same data. So they're overwriting data with uh, a copy of itself so it doesn't go crazy. Hmm. Uh, And then the corruption at the end to actually do remote code execution. 
So uh, one complication is that the Eula text is copied with stir copy. And stir copy stops as soon as it finds a null byte or a zero byte, because uh, that normally marks the end of the string. Uh, our string uh, contained code that often contained zero bytes. So we had to mutate that the compiled code such that it contained no zero bytes and had a, a carefully crafted bit of bootstrap assembly to unmutate it. So they had to have a bit of code. So, so they had to change what the, the ULED to basically change all the null bytes to something else. And then a bit of assembly at the top that would find it and turn them back into null bytes after they had been copied. After they had overflowed the buffer. And then fix it up so that it could run. So in the end, their hack was send an oversized EULA. That uh, overflows the EULA buffer uh, with some uh, miscellaneous data and then the callback handler pointer. Then, uh, you know, with the disassembler or the assembly code that would fix up the null bytes, then send a packet to trigger the code they had just added via the overflow. Then the game jumps to that bootstrap code pointed to by the handler. The bootstrap would decode the payload data. The payload then downloads uh, and stores the stop miscellaneous data, and then they could execute a patch and patch the game. And their patch included a, a proper patcher for, to be able to use then on. Uh, and then a couple other people in this Twitter site have also added their own uh, funny stories, like dirty game development tricks. Oh, good. That's probably pretty good to read through. But yes, the, the Twitter thread is, is pretty funny to watch. <laughs> uh, and then obviously somebody's got a, a GIF here from hackers with the guys like pulling out two floppy disks like their knives or something. <laughs> I like uh, internet humor. Amazon's been busy this week. They're launching Amazon Light Sale. They say it's just like, wait, no, don't say the DigitalOcean name. It's not just like DigitalOcean. They say it's a simple cloud service. <laughs> With exactly the same pricing and yeah. PM sizes as digital. This is very clearly Amazon trying to make a DigitalOcean killer. Yeah, I think, you know, in this particular case, though, competition's always good. And yeah, uh, well, the big thing DigitalOcean has going for it is you know exactly what you're going to pay. With Amazon, there's all these other things like, oh, that costs extra. And, oh, you went over the bandwidth, that'll be this much more. I had, a, uh, I had a former Amazon employee who worked in the Amazon IT area tell me, he's like, I don't think DigitalOcean has much to worry about. I've seen what Amazon's infrastructure runs on. <laughs> some of it mm -hmm. is not so solid. So either way, I think competition's great. And so that, and not the only Amazon announcement we have in the roundup, but so Amazon LightSale, their new virtual private service. And I'm sure it'll tie in pretty handsomely with all the Amazon services. It's yes. Gonna, uh, this is the whole point, is Amazon's worried that too many people, especially developers, are using DigitalOcean for their small projects uh, because Amazon's too expensive. So, like, oh, well, yeah. we'll just make exactly the same plans, you know, the $5, 10 $20 VMs, uh, except we'll let you also connect to, all, you know, EC2 or to, to, like, S3 and all the other stuff. It's like, yeah, but all that costs extra money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. also, if you need extra bandwidth from DigitalOcean, it's like, five cents or two cents, something like that. Uh, Amazon is still the full nine cents. I think also uh, it's going to put a lot of pressure on businesses like Linode that have... Altered yep. uh, and a bunch of other ones that are very similar to DigitalOcean. Although uh, in the one article that I saw, uh, I don't know if it's one you saw, but there was actually a comment from Linode at the end of the article. I didn't see that. Ah. Uh, one of the Linode says, uh, we're not worried because 
you know, we've been doing this a long time and, and we know how to treat our people. I would imagine DigitalOcean yeah. probably feels the same way. Same way. It's like, you know, DigitalOcean, it's, if you sign up for the $5 one, it's going to be $5. With Amazon, you sign up for the $5 one, you might get a giant bill the next week or next month. Either way, though, I'm glad to see people uh, bringing the competition and it's obvious that DigitalOcean set the bar. Uh, okay. Yeah. We just like... When Amazon uses like exactly the same instance sizes with like the same amounts of RAM for the same yeah. price, yeah, it's and like yeah, yeah, okay, all right, they said okay, they said it. That's cool. So tell me about this uh, certificate support in SSH or what? What is this? Yeah, this is a a giant tutorialish thing with a funny layout that explains how to use certificates with SSH instead of necessarily keys, so that you can revoke them and things like that. It has a clock that follows me as I scroll, and a menu up here. Yeah, it's a little intense fashion web design. Mixed but with the information is very, but, very valuable. Yes, exactly. So uh, yeah. if you're interested in using SSH with uh, more centralized control, check it out. Like I said, Amazon is busy this week. They're launching AWS Shield, which is a competitor with Cloudflare. AWS Shield is generally available today and is already turned on for free for all web applications that run on AWS. No action by developer is required. The service is based on the work Amazon has done, the Elastic Load Balancer, CloudFront CDN, and Route 53 DNS service. It offers developers automatic protection against the kind of DDoS attacks that are becoming more frequent. <clears throat> Free service. And they say it will protect applications against 96% of the most common attacks. Maybe or maybe not. Like a couple of ways of it sound, it sounds more like a web application firewall, which is something that, that like Cloudflare does as well. But that doesn't protect applications that aren't web-based. Right. Or it doesn't tell you if the attack is just UDP flood or something. Yeah, if I want to run back-end services for my uh, iPhone app, if they're not on uh, web, if they're not on 80 or 443, am I going to get protection? Well, yeah, in particular, if they're not using HTTP, because their CloudFront thing is just basically an HTTP proxy. Hmm. And then it, it just says, oh, this request has SQL injection and drops it. That's one thing. Uh, I don't know. Interesting, though, that what I what I find to be noteworthy about this story is even if it was just even if it's just HTTP proxying, what was once could be an entire business's industry like that could be what a company does Mm -hmm. is now just something free that Google and Amazon are just giving away. Well, Amazon's not giving it away for free. Well, that's true. Google only gives it to free to people they like. So when I say free, I mean, they're just including it as a bundled feature. Right. But they're going to charge you for it. Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, All right, so this is a good one. The Internet Archive is building a Canadian copy to protect itself from Donald Trump? Well, not just Donald Trump, but, you know, the new FBI rules and and all the things in general. I guess you have to put Trump in the headline, though, right? Because that gets clicks. Yeah, well, you know, that was TechCrunch, not me. Or not TechCrunch. Verge, yeah. No, I know, I know, I know. Uh, But, yeah, so the Internet Archive is set up a, a... Basically got a whole bunch of data center space up here in Toronto, and they're going to create a complete backup of their 15 petabytes of data to here so that, uh, and it's rather than being owned by the Internet Archive charity in the U.S., it's a separate Canadian charity uh, called like Internet Archive Canada or whatever. Brilliant. affiliated, but it's separate uh, so that they have the full protection of the Canadian government. That is such. Uh, And it also means that donations to it are tax deductible in Canada. Also handy. They should do more of this. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. Um, this is one of the stories I'm the most excited about this week. This is going to solve some serious problems for Chris. So I wanted to share it with you guys. 
Plex is now getting its very own Cody add-on that you add on to Cody, and you can use your Plex database as the back end for Cody. This is this is so brilliant because Cody is a really fantastic media player, and it has the ability to play over local file shares, which I prefer over HTTP streaming. I prefer to just I have Especially a Samba. Yeah, I have a Sombra NFS mount already on the system. Just pull it from the file system, and that that makes like. For, for jumping around in a in a long movie instantaneously fast just boom boom pop 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 on my tv i can i can fast forward through you know anything uh without any leg with the http streaming it stops it reconnects it, it requests that part of the file and then it starts streaming again mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if there's any kind of conversion happening on the back end because plex often uses conversion to make it work it takes even longer whereas cody supports way more file systems played natively and now I can use my Plex database to power the information in Cody. It's a, such a nice system. It's the 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 the, the level of the, awesomeness the Plex, that these the Plex plugin for free now has just got that much more useful. Yeah, and the level of awesomeness that you can now achieve with like an Android t- set top TV box or a Roku and some of the stuff is so awesome. All the years I spent trying to build different media services. I didn't services. see the details, but I also saw Plex is dropping the subscription requirement for some of its services. Yeah, it's, for it's like the, for there, there's, like, there's like a desktop media player and stuff. All that kind of stuff's now free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But more information in that link. Uh, so Schneier's got a post here to sort of start rounding down the roundup. Uh, that's a key to uh, Internet of Security incentives, which is sort of a topic we've been getting a lot of email about. So this is good. Yeah. So this is uh, Snyder's thoughts on what we have to do to make to incentivize companies to actually care about IoT security instead of just pumping them uh, their crapware on us. Yeah. Also, uh, sort of like uh, legal uh, threats or incentives that would make companies maybe snap into gear, perhaps, or uh, other fines or things like that. all kinds of different stuff. I suppose you could do. So it's probably a good read if you've been thinking about this and you've been emailing us about this. Now, I thought this is just fun. I don't. I don't really expect anybody to care. It's just fun. Uh, this, for some reason, has happened. Slack is now working on the Commodore sixty four. Obviously, that was that was important. First, you get IRC working, then you get Slack on the Commodore. It really uses a little Raspberry Pi magic too to make it all happen. But it does look pretty cool. I gotta say, I actually would like using Slack more like this. I think. Looks <laughs> kind of look at the, look how good that looks. That's super funny. So you can check out the link with the yeah, GIFs memories. or the GIFs, whatever you want to call them, uh, in GIFs. the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, our very last link for the roundup this week is one that is, I guess, fairly interactive. It's got yeah. audio. I, I have no idea. I've waited. I have sound on. So I'm just going to click this button. Is that what I'm doing? Wait, wait, wait. All right. Well, you get to decide if you want to click the button. Subject suddenly moved in another direction. Okay. It's like a story. Is this a story? No, it's 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 figuring out what you're doing. Oh <clears throat> no, really? Subject Unusual is- behavior. Hmm. Okay. All right. Oh, there's achievements, huh? Yes. You visited the click click button. You clicked the button. You moved up. You moved down. All right, I can do these things. Whoopsie. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Didn't know it was. You never said that to me. <laughs> All right, so now I'm going to click the button. Mm-hmm. I have to do this. All right, so I feel like I've gotten most of. The, no, I haven't. All right, here we go. Button's clicked. Subject logged in. At looking at subject's time zone, he probably should be at work. Yeah, I should be. Subject's cursor speed is 
pretty average. Ouch. But hey, is there anything more interesting than an ordinary person? <laughs> Subject's cursor is mostly on the bottom right part of the screen. Sweet. So I get achievements for being there for a minute. Moving around yeah. a lot now. Uh, click, Curious click button, and energetic. Uh, like Interesting. A times really quick. How about like a whole bunch of times? A yeah. triple click. Genius. Work uh, harder. In particular, this is exploiting some of the uh, information okay. given away by JavaScript. And ah, yeah. this you is probably a never realize when you go to a website that the website's sitting in the background being like, oh, you spend most of your time in the bottom right corner of the screen. Maybe I should put the ads there. Or, you know, it's like, oh. Five times within one second. I did it more than that. Six times within one second. So it's like watching everything I do. So this yeah. is really a demonstration. Being around for quite some somewhere. time now. Subject seems to like me. Well, go on then. That's kind of funny. Is there a way to highlight this with the keyboard so I can just slam this thing like a monkey? Nope. See so what else you got now? What else you got now? What else you got? I can. I why is this? Why is this actually so much fun? I don't know. I don't understand. This is this is unusually fun. You could find that at click 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 dot click, or just use the link in the uh, show. Cody Dragon, no, that's not that. <clears throat> that's pretty funny. So, have you were you messing around with that before the show? A little bit, yeah, uh, when somebody <laughs> sent it to me. Uh, but, you know, that's actually stuff some websites do. Like, if you if you have Google Analytics on, say, jb.com, you can actually go see a heat map of where people's mouse sits while they're Nothing looking at the page. Nothing seems to trigger anything. And, uh, and, like, in the case of Scale Engine, we might be interested in, you know, how long does it take before people click the Get a Free Demo button and stuff like that. Mm. Yes. Yeah, sort of anyway, creepy, Alan. It's... it's it, Looking at it will make you realize just how much the website is learning about you while you're reading the website. Super creepy. And now you can kind of understand why those new captures, how they kind of work, too. Like the ones that just sort of automatically sense if you're a robot or not. You don't actually have to you kind of get an idea. Yeah. If, if you are actually moving the cursor around versus just jumping from point A to point B and so on, then it's like, ah. If you'd like to get a story in our roundup, techsnap.reddit.com is a great way to do it. Don't forget you can send in your questions using the contact page. And you can watch us live over jblive.tv with showtimes at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, which you can convert to your local time zone right there on the page. Anything else we should cover, Mr. Jude, before we run? Uh, no, that's about it. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.